So I woke up yesterday at five in the morning with this killer head cold, just feeling really awful, down some cold medicine, because if you've ever flown with congestion, you realize that you're convinced you're gonna die by way of your eyes popping out of your head. It's an awful, awful feeling. So I downed some cold medicine, which I don't normally do, so I felt a little loopy all day, and it didn't really kick it, so I downed a couple more different medications just for good measure. I had a really good time. I flew as I flew all the way here, and I had, was delayed, like majorly so, in Denver. And, uh, uh, and so I arrived here. I was picked up at the airport at 519. That's when you picked me up. 519, church service starts at, at 6. And so I don't really remember a lot of what happened last night uh, because I was pretty looped, uh, honestly. <clears throat> but I've had 10 hours of sleep since. I'm only on one cold medicine this morning. It's good. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling much more focused. So you picked the right service to come to. I feel really bad for the folks that came last night. I don't know what I uh, said, what I preached, but your pastor has lots of time to undo any heresies. They recorded it. He can just go down the list and fix. I think I may have spoken in tongues. I'm not really sure. It's crazy things were happening. I don't remember anything about it, uh, but here's what I do remember. I remember how gracious and how patient and how kind and how hardworking your staff was when I arrived. I mean, I really threw some wrenches into the gears last night, showing up that late and feeling as bad as I did. And they had a schedule for how the service was supposed to go. And I sort of blew through parts of that, not intentionally. I just really wasn't all here. And they were so gracious and so kind. And I felt so loved and I felt so taken care of by everyone here that I think they deserve a round of applause. Just gratitude. <clears throat> <clears throat> I tell you what, if you're visiting this morning and you don't have a church home, I don't want to pull you away from somewhere you already call home, but if you don't have a home, I hope that you'll come next week. I've been listening to the podcast of this church for the last month. It's great teaching, and I've already seen great people and great leadership and so compassionate and so kind. So if you're looking for a place to consider to be your church family, hey, I'd come back here next week and get some much better music, some much better teaching, and get to know the people who are normally in charge. This, this would be a good place. If I lived here, I would definitely hang out with you guys. This is where I'd be. I'm not sure the coffee's strong enough based on the first uh, service uh, response. Um, that would maybe be the only change I'd make in the way this church is run. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe some espressos. Uh, maybe cut out the decaf because, wow, that service was not awake. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I'd taken a wrong turn and landed in a Presbyterian church for a moment. And <clears throat> But you guys are here and you're already laughing and I haven't even said anything actual, actually funny yet. Um, so let me just pause and pray and just give thanks for this opportunity. And would you pray with me and ask God to speak to you? God, thank you this morning for the opportunity to be with family, to be with uh, people who before yesterday were just strangers but already feel like family because we call you Father. And God, I thank you just for the experience of worshiping you together. And now, guys, we open your word and we, we want to hear from you. Yeah, we know that John 15 is true, that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so God, uh, with cold medicine coursing through my veins and a sore throat and a headache, uh, I'm more convinced than ever. It's true every week, but I'm more convinced this morning than ever that there is really no strength in me and there is no good in me except that comes from you. So God, I ask you to use me and speak through me. And God, in this room is just filled with normal people and they cannot change their hearts. We cannot change our lives. We cannot understand the truth or apply the truth or be changed by the truth. 
Only you can do that. And so God, we just admit that to you now. And we ask you to do good things here because only you can do it. And we ask you, God, now to multiply our attention span and to change us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Got some bad news for you. I hate to give bad news to people I like so much, but here it goes. I'll make it fast. I believe with all my heart that God is Southern. I believe it. Now, you don't want to ever trust a guy with a haircut like mine, all right? You want to check this out. I'm going to Go to, go to scripture on this, and you're going to want to check this out, make sure that I'm telling the truth to you, because I know that's a pretty radical truth to start with. Everything we're going to say this morning is pretty much based on that truth. God is Southern. I go to Exodus 16, okay? Here's the story. God's children are making this long journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, and on this 40-year journey, they get a little hungry and a whole lot whiny. And so God pulls over the minivan, and he has a talk with his children through his babysitter, Moses. And he says these words to them in Exodus 16, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, and you are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This is a test to see if you'll obey my instruction. And God is good, so he keeps his promises, and he, true to his word, did rain down this delicious, sweet, flaky, heavenly bread every morning for his children to have for breakfast. It was so good, so delectable, they'd never put anything like it in their mouth, and so they gave it a most unusual name. They named it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? It's hard to know when I'm joking, I'm not. In Hebrew, manna means, what is it? Is it? It's that good. And then every evening, God would rain down quail from heaven for his kids to eat for for dinner. So he had breakfast, he had dinner. Now the Bible, the Old Testament was originally translated from Hebrew into English by a bunch of British guys. And I don't know if you've been over to that side of of the ocean. Have you gone over there? Wonderful people, beautiful place, awful food. They don't know anything about food. And so they think they messed up the translation just a little bit. Had this been translated, Exodus 16 had been translated by folks from where I come from, that would not say manna and quail. That would clearly be more accurately rendered biscuits and chicken. That's what that would be, (laughs) which is proof, all the proof that I need that God is Southern. You're not going with me on that, are you? Okay, well, can we at least agree on this, that God is good? You agree? Yes, so God is good, and he gave his kids the best. Now, the problem with God giving us his best is that it often brings out the worst in us. And so as God served breakfast and dinner, he also provided a new law. And this law is found right there in Exodus 16. It says, you are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This is a test to see if you'll obey my instruction. This law is so important because God had brought his children out of bondage and was leading them to a land of their own where they would become a nation. And he did this for a very specific reason. And the spot he chose in the world to put them, he chose for a very specific reason. You see, he put his children, he made them a nation among pagan nations. And he set them up to be a society that operates in such a way that they would actually image God to the world. That the way that they functioned as a society would say, would tell the world around them what God is actually like. They were God's representatives on earth. And so their nation had to work in such a way that it showed all the other nations that God really is 
good. And so God gave his children laws so that they would function in such a way that they would show the other nations around them that God really is good. And the very first law he gave them so they could become that kind of nation was not the Ten Commandments. It's Exodus 16. Each day you are to go out and gather enough for that day. This is a test to see if you'll obey my instruction. Now, if they obey that law, everyone gets to taste that God is good. And for a while they did obey that law. God made it so easy for them to obey that he even defined for them what daily bread is. So there, could be, there could be no... Uh, no quibbling over what that means. He told them that daily bread would be an omer. In, in America, that would be about two liters. Every person got to collect two liters of food each day. And so if they had two people in their house, they got four liters of food. If they had four people in their house, they got eight liters of food. This is the awake service, you said. Okay. If they had eight people in their house, they got... 16 liters of food. I mean, this is math even musicians can do, okay? And so they went out every day and they gathered their two liters for every person in their house, their daily bread. And as long as they did that, everyone got to see that God was good. But then one day, and we don't know how it happened. The Bible doesn't give us details. God inspired men to write scripture. If he had inspired women to write it, it'd have far more detail. It would also be far too heavy to carry around. But there's some detail missing. So here's the, I'm imagining what happened exactly. I'm imagining that one day someone, an early riser, they showed up early to the breakfast buffet and they opened the flap of their tent and they looked out on the front lawn and there, as far as the eye could see, was just acres of delicious, what is it? And they stepped out of their tent and they got their two liter container and they filled it up with their daily bread and there was still nobody there. No one's gonna notice if a little is missing. So this person got extra, put it away in the pockets of his toga. He went back into his tent and put it away in his 401k, I'm sorry, his refrigerator, in case God ever stopped being good. And this made God angry. Exodus 16 tells us that when this happened, that God turned their leftovers into maggots and it began to stink. I don't know about you, but tomorrow morning, I show up at the breakfast table and out of my cereal box comes something wriggly and stinky. I am pushing my chair away from that table, getting on my face right there before God, right there by the refrigerator and repenting of whatever it is I have done, right? I mean, he turned their leftovers into maggots and it began to stink and no longer satisfied. So God's kids cried out to God. They repented of their sin. And it says that from that time on, they obeyed the daily bread law. The first law. The first law. It ends this way. In Exodus 16, it says this. That when they obeyed the law, it says that those who gathered much, because they had much family, didn't have too much. And those who gathered little because they had little family, didn't have too little, but everyone had enough. And those who gathered much didn't have too much. Those who gathered little didn't have too little, but everyone had enough. And everyone got to see that God really is good, that he's a good dad who makes enough for every child at the table. 
Now, it's hard, isn't it, though, when you're reading the Old Testament? The Old Testament is full of laws. Have you gone through Leviticus and Deuteronomy lately? Do you guys have a checklist of that? Because every one of you are breaking one of those Old Testament laws. Like, I'll give you just an example of just a few of the things you guys are breaking. Just this morning, just looking out here on the crowd, I can tell that you're, you're completely disregarding large chunks of the Old Testament. Like the Old Testament says that, uh, that you shouldn't shave, guys. You shouldn't do that. And so uh, I've got just a few days growth. I see a few mustaches, a couple of beards. But for the most part, uh, guys, you're all breaking the law, and some of the women too. And so you're breaking the law. And then there's a law that says that you can't mix the fibers of your clothing. So if you're wearing jeans made out of cotton like I am this morning, then everything else you have on, even the stuff that nobody wants to see, all of that needs to be made out of the same material. That's a law. You're all breaking that. And there's a law that says that for a few days every month, I'm supposed to put my wife in a tent in the backyard. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of strange laws in the Old Testament. No matter how weird they are, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily a bad idea. All right? And uh, as many times my wife has begged me to just give her a magazine and a glass of sweet tea and put her in a tent in the backyard, I have never done that. Um, but, uh, but she thinks it's a good idea. There are a lot of Old Testament laws that you look at and you go, you know, maybe that's a keeper. How do we know? How do we know when a law from the Old Testament carries over into our New Testament lives? Well, one way is to read the New Testament. When we read the New Testament and we see how Christians live on the other side of the cross, if we discover that Christians in the New Testament are obeying an Old Testament law, then we may not be off the hook either. So let's go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was commissioned as the first missionary to Gentiles. That's non-Jews like you and me. He went to the church in Jerusalem, and he had the pillars of the church, the three pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John. He asked them to lay hands on him and to pray for him and to send him out as the first missionary. They did that. They prayed for him. And then after they prayed for him, as he left them that morning, they gave him one piece of instruction. Now, if you were going to tell someone only one thing as they go out to plant the first churches the world has ever seen, if you're going to give them one piece of instruction, what would it be? I mean, I've been in some churches growing up that have fought over some things that seemed really important, like what kind of chairs we have, or if we have pews, or should we have chandeliers, or can lighting, should we have screens, or hymnals, a guy with some stubble and a messed up haircut, or a choir. I mean, we fight over these things. They're so, so important. Well, what was so important? What was so important to be the one thing that James, Peter, and John taught Paul as he left? One piece of instruction. Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, here's the one thing they told Paul. Paul, remember the poor. Remember the poor. Scholars tell us now that 80% of the Christians living in Jerusalem in the first century were living in abject poverty. 80% of the Christians in the room that day when Paul was sent out as a missionary, 80% of those Christians were malnourished. They did not have daily bread. And they asked him, please Remember us, Paul. Wherever you go, whatever you do, wherever God takes you, please always remember us. Please remember us. I was in Ethiopia, 2007, uh, right outside the capital city of Addis. I brought a picture of a little girl that I'll never forget, that I can't help but remember. Her, this is what poverty looks like. This is the sort of thing that Paul may have seen that day that he was sent out as a missionary. 
This little girl is missing toenails. She has no pants, no underwear. That dress she has is someone else's shirt. Her skin is an ashy gray, not the beautiful brown God made it to be. Her nose is crusty, her eyes are watery. Her tongue is huge, like a bright red strawberry, so big she can't close her mouth around it. And the only way that she could ask me for food was to point into her mouth with two fingers. And I brought her to me and I held her little skeleton frame against my body and I prayed for her. And as I did, I felt huge slick spots on the back of her head. This is poverty. This is poor. And can you imagine Paul being there in that church in Jerusalem and looking out and seeing listless babies on the laps of mothers, seeing children, seeing children who haven't eaten in days, mothers with empty breasts all sitting there and they're saying to him, Paul, remember us. And if you've ever been, if you've ever been to a country and seen extreme poverty, abject poverty, then you're probably saying with me, how could I ever forget? It changes you forever. Perspective totally, permanently, forever shifted. Heart broken and compelled to love. And Paul was too. Paul could not forget. And wherever he went, as he planted churches, when those churches reached maturity, the Apostle Paul would double back to that church and he would collect an offering. And that offering was then taken to the church in Jerusalem so that the church in Jerusalem can meet the needs of its people. Are you catching what's going on? Here's the model. The church, the churches Paul plants, they collect an offering. The offering is then taken to the church in Jerusalem. And through the church in Jerusalem, the needs of the poor are met. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible or a smartphone, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13 is where I'm going to be. The Apostle Paul is collecting one of these offerings from the church in Corinth. It's not a church that's rich, but it's a church that has leftovers. And he writes to them about the needs of the poor in Jerusalem, and he reminds them that it's almost time for him to visit and he reminds them, I'm going to collect the offering. And then he asks them to give. And here's how he asks them to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, I'll quote. Here he's, here's what he says. Our, our desire is not that you would be hard-pressed so that others may be relieved. Hard-pressed there means I don't want you to starve. I don't want your children to suffer so that their children can live. I don't want you to be burdened. I don't want you to become poor. I don't want you to be hard pressed so that they may be relieved, but that there might be equality. Did you know that word is in the Bible? And Paul said, I don't want you to be hard pressed so that they might be relieved, but that there might be equality. And then he goes on. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. And someday their plenty may supply what you need. Who knows? And he says, then there will be equality. He uses the word twice, same word. Because God knew that Glenn Beck would be born. Because God knew that America and really every nation would be split into conservative and liberal, red and blue, elephants and donkeys, 
theologically right, theologically left, theologically confused in the middle. Because he knew that there would be Christians in all kinds of nations, in all different kinds of times, because there would be Christians worshiping God in shanty towns in South Africa and in slums in Kolkata, India, and in gated communities in Montana. Because he knew that we would all come to him, come to scripture with our own biases, philosophies, politics, theologies, and lifestyles. He defined the word equality so that no longer can I take that word and conform it to who I am and what I believe, but I must conform who I am and what I believe to that word. He defines the word equality, and here's what he says. Our desire is not that you would be hard-pressed so that they might be relieved, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that someday their plenty may supply what you need. And then there will be equality as it is written. And he quotes Exodus 16. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little, but everyone had enough. Equality God wants is that God's people cheerfully, willingly, joyfully, moved by compassion and gratitude, take their daily bread and pass the biscuits so that everyone gets to taste and see that God is good. That's the equality God wants. And in one small paragraph and only three little sentences, the Apostle Paul takes a very bizarre, not at all practical, very old law from the pages of antiquity and places it solidly on the other side of Calvary in front of all of us this morning and says, take only your daily bread. This is a test. And that word test in Hebrew, it literally means this is very, very hard. This is very, very hard. I've seen it in all three services here. I've seen it in 80 to 90 cities a year for the last seven years as I've been teaching this message to people. I see the arms crossed. I see the furrowed brows. I see people going, I have no idea how to do this where I am. Like in my neighborhood, in my family, with my budget, with my, I don't, I don't know what this even looks like. It's hard, isn't it? Anybody struggling with this already? It's hard. It's so hard that I've met very few people who pass this test. I want to introduce you to one. Her name is Karen. She's 11 years old. I met her in Kolkata, India. As I snaked my way through the slums, making my way to her house, we passed these lean-tos and shacks made out of plastic and other thrown away garbage. It looked like forts my kids would make in the backyard. I couldn't believe that families actually lived in these little boxes. We eventually made our way around a corner and we could see Kieran's house and it stood out in the drab gray and browns of the slum. It's this bright blue house and this beautiful 11-year-old smiling girl out front wearing her school uniform. As I walked toward her to shake her hand, I counted the steps across the front of her house, six feet. And I could look over the roof and see four feet deep, six by four, 24 square feet. 
smaller than the average American bathroom. I don't tell you that to say this is what poverty looks like, but to say, do you see that smile? This is what enough looks like for Karen and her family of five. She has a solid door that locks, a window with a grate over it so no one can reach in and take, a roof that doesn't leak, a concrete floor, and one little wooden bench in there that her dad made. She's got furniture. And I walked into that house, and the whole slum had gathered around to, to see the visitors who had come. But also, I'm six foot two, and that doorway is four and a half feet tall, so I'm pretty sure they're there just to see if I would fit. And I made it into her house. I just sat there with my back against the cool walls, and I just looked up at this beautiful girl, Kieran, and just heard her story. It was an incredible story. She said that used to, she ate every two or three days, even if her mom and dad starved themselves for days on end. It was just all there was to go around for her and her two brothers to eat every two or three days. But now she eats every single day, every day. And she said that used to, she would get sick and she would just wait it out and hope for the best. But now she has Christian doctors and dentists and nurses who care for her body. She's had immunizations so she won't die needlessly of diseases that really here in America, I thought were gone ages ago, but they still exist in her part of the world. She was born in a Hindu faith, a faith that has told millions throughout the centuries, as it is written, so it is written. In other words, whatever you were born as is what you will die as. If you were born an impoverished girl in the slums of Kolkata, you will die an impoverished woman in the slums of Kolkata. Who you are is all you ever will be. There is no hope, there is no dream, there is no way out. But that day she read and she wrote for me. She can add, she can subtract. She has school books, she has school uniforms. She's able to go to school and then get after school tutoring for two or three hours after school every day. And she told me that her dream now is to become a teacher, like the teachers who forever changed the direction of her life. The best part of the story, I mean, the other two services didn't react at all, but I know that you guys, you guys are gonna, because you're alive, okay? But this is the best part of the story. Kieran and her family used to worship 2,000 gods. But that day, she told me that my God is the only God who answered her prayers, the only God who proved himself to be good. And she said that Jesus is her king. That's good, isn't it? And all this care to Kieran's mind, body, and spirit comes to her through a local church. See, Kieran is one of the 1.4 million children that Compassion International serves in 26 of the world's poorest countries. Every one of them served through the most powerful entity on earth, the local church. And it's at that church that she gets her food and she gets her tutoring and she gets her proper nutrition it's that church that teaches her about the love of Jesus Christ and reminds her that God has a plan for her life and he sees even her. And all of this care for her comes through the local church, but is underwritten by an offering of $38 a month. Someone's leftovers. I know who that someone is. I read her letters that she's written to Kieran over all these years. It's a college student from Western Canada 
a college student who, I don't know, at a college chapel service or a conference or a concert or a church service like this, she heard someone speak about Compassion International and she was asked to raise her hand if she wanted to sponsor a child and she did and a volunteer gave her a child sponsorship packet that had Kieran's face on it and Kieran's name and her birthday and a little bit of her story and that college student who's probably living on ramen noodles and Kool-Aid, right? I mean, college students are not rich, but this college student somehow found $38 a month left over. And she gave that offering cheerfully, joyfully. And she wrote that check every month for $38 to Compassion International so that Compassion through that local church can meet Kieran's needs. But she didn't just give her cash, she gave her herself. And that college student prays for Kieran. She has her picture on her wall. And I got to read the letters how this college student had written her through the years from the very first very awkward letter that said, I don't really know what to say to you, but I promise I will write. All the way to the letter with the picture of her getting engaged in an Italian restaurant. All the way to the letter where she's getting married at an altar at a church and saying, I wish you were here. This college student gave herself to Kieran. And it's her prayers and it's her encouragement that pulled Kieran through on the hardest days. And it's her $38 that became food in her belly and a shot in her arm and hope for the future. Kieran wanted me to go to that church, that Compassion Child Development Center, to meet her teachers and her pastor and her friends. And so that crowd that was gathered around to see if I would make it into Karen's house was still there to see if I'd ever get out. And when I popped through that doorway, they just all erupted in shouts and laughter, lots and lots of laughter and some applause, except for two men in the front whose hands were chewed off by leprosy. And Karen and I walked hand in hand through that crowd and we snaked our way through the slum on the way to her church, to her compassion childcare center. And we stepped over and through and around little streams of urine that spilled out of the homes in the slum. And hand in hand, we eventually came to a bridge that we crossed that spanned polluted waters. And you could see the shine on the surface and the sludge lapping against the shore. And looking over the guardrail, I could see little kids the ages of mine, little half-naked children, seven, five, three, stooped on the shore, filling containers with the day's drinking supply. And Karen began to cry. And I asked her the dumbest question. I said, what's wrong? I mean, what is not wrong in this place? And she said, nothing's wrong. I'm just so very happy. And I thought, can an 11 year old without an iPod and a cell phone be happy? Is it possible for an 11 year old who has no closet, who's never been in a car or a restaurant, who has one pair of shoes, a school uniform, and two other changes of clothes, is it possible for an 11 year old who lives among lepers, who walks through other people's urine on the way to school and church every day, who lives in this kind of darkness, is it possible for her to be this happy? So happy that she's moved to tears? I had to know why. And when I asked, her answer was the best sermon I've ever heard. She said this, I'm so very happy because I have God. Hmm. That's how we pass the test, isn't it? Isn't that the real test? Is my daily bread and my God enough to make me so very happy? 
If my God is everything I need to be so very happy, I can give up anything he wants to make someone else so very happy, to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, to give them food, education, vocational training, health care, hope. If God is everything that I need to be so very happy, I can give up anything he wants to make someone else so very happy. And the reason that I don't give up everything he wants is because he's not enough to make me so very happy. It all comes full circle. How good do I really think God is? To live a life that proves to others God is good, I must first believe God is good. If I believe he's good, I can give up everything else so that he can prove himself good to others. This looks different for everybody. This is gonna play out differently in your life than it played out in my life. But I know that for me, I took a trip with Compassion International. I didn't want to. I was very skeptical. I had worked for a child nonprofit when I was in college, a children's home that took care of orphans and refugees from around the world. And they turned out not to be everything that they said they were. And I felt complicit because I worked for them. And I was so jaded. I was so cynical and so skeptical that Compassion International, my friends who worked here, they asked me for four years, please just go see what we do. Just go see what we do. We know it's something that you would get excited about. And I said, no, 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 no. And finally, I had an empty blank in my calendar and they knew it and I was out of excuses. And I said, okay. And I went and I saw. I saw the local church, unlike my church that sits empty 85% of the week, full of kids every single day receiving care of their mind, body, and spirit. I saw how far $38 goes to not only convert someone to Christianity, but to convert their whole life from poverty to enough. I saw how much a little bit, how far a little bit goes, and I was, how could I not remember and I came home to my dream house, right? I, my wife had always wanted double ovens. I don't know why, because she only uses the microwave, but we had them there. I always wanted a bathtub big enough for six foot two me to lay down in. And I had one of those with those jacuzzi jets that feels really good after a long day of soft rocking across America. I mean, I had, it was my dream house, hardwood floors, stone fireplace, fountain in the backyard, gated community, nice and safe, right? I had all of that. And it was fabulous. People who say that money can't buy happiness, they are lying through their teeth. I was very, very happy. <laughs> but then God changed everything. And he moved me beyond happiness to purposeful, satisfied. I came home from that trip with compassion. I put a for sale sign in the yard of my dream house. And that was hard. And I gotta be honest with you, I wondered, God, are you enough? Because I worked really hard for this. And my parents are really proud of me right now. And I feel very successful. And I just really don't know if I can give this up and I can be content. Are you good enough? And I thought that would shut him up and it didn't. Next was cable. God, I don't know about this. What are we gonna do for four hours every night? Are you good enough to help me spend my, how on earth, how am I gonna stay relevant if I don't know what's happening in the world of sitcoms and reality shows? 
And I gave him that and I thought, okay, that's it. And he said, coffee, <laughs> soft drinks. God, I don't know if you're good enough to get me through the headaches. Can I just tell you that we have tripped and bungled and staggered our way in the direction that God leads and we've made a lot of mistakes as a family. But very slowly, over many years, our life has become more and more simple so that more children can simply live, so that more children can hear the gospel, so they can have education, nutrition, and health care, so that they can see that God really is good. And in the process, I've learned that God really is good. He really is enough. This morning, I can think of three ways that we could respond. The first is for you to get honest with God like I've had to do thousands of times. <laughs> and just say, God, you're scaring me. I trust you with my sin. I trust you to take care of me when I die. But the right now, it's kind of freaking me out. And I don't know that I can give up whatever it is you're going to ask me to give up. I don't know that I can do whatever it is you're about to ask me to do. And so I just want to be real clear with you, God. I'm not there yet. And I know that you know this, but I want you to know that I know that you know this. And that this morning, God, I know that you're good, but my heart wonders if it's true. That's the first step. I think most of us, if we're honest, that's where we need to start this morning, is to just say to God, I don't really know what any of this means for me, but I'm afraid of what it means for me, and what I'm really afraid of is that you really, that I really don't trust you. I really don't think you're good enough. You really aren't enough to make me happy, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I just want to get this straight. Can I just tell you that God will meet you there and he will take you from that place of fear when you're honest about it and he will walk you baby step at a time and he will be faithful and he will prove to you over the rest of your life that he really is good he really does have you you're really going to be okay so step one maybe this is the way you'd respond is just to get get straight with God just be honest with him about where you really are where you really are this morning second thing you could do is you could ask God God, show me my leftovers. I believe you're good and I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to deny myself. I'll give up everything for the kingdom, anything you ask me to do. So God, just help me take stock of my life. I wanna see it the way you do. I don't see leftovers, but God, you show me where they are. You show me where they are. Can I tell you where some of your leftovers may lie? The average American spends $100 a month on soft drinks and $78 a month on cable. It's $178 that we don't need to live. Now, I can't tell you there's anything wrong with that or that God doesn't want you to have that. I'm not at all saying that, but that might be something that God says, hey, there's some. And ask God when he shows you where the leftovers are in your life, God, how do you want me to spend those? How can I invest those for your kingdom to show the world that you really are good? And God may ask you to come speak to your pastor and your staff here and to say, I've got some extra time, I've got some talent, I've got some know-how, I've got some cash. And I really feel like God this morning is telling me to invest that right here, right here at Journey, right here in this community, in this valley. 
And so I'm gonna just be faithful to that. So ask God, where are your leftovers? And then just follow him wherever he leads to invest those the way that he leads you to do that and trust that he'll be enough, all right? The third and final way you can respond is to sponsor a child through Compassion International. We have a lot of child sponsorship packets here. Our last two services, though, about wiped us out. I had an example packet somewhere. I misplaced that. Do one of our volunteers want to bring me one of those packets so I can just show folks what this looks like? One of those volunteers, somebody? Here comes Tara. Tara is a wonder woman. This church would fall apart if she was not here. I've figured that out pretty quickly. Thank you very much. Thank you. So this packet belongs to Charlene. She's got some killer braids happening here and some bows. And she's in Haiti. And she was born May 7, 2009. Okay, now this is the only packet that exists for Charlene. This is the only packet that exists for her. And so if you today were to raise your hand, in just a minute I'm going to play a song, and if you were to raise your hand and say, I want to sponsor a child, a volunteer would hand you a child sponsorship packet just like this, and the packet you would have would be the only one that exists for that child. You're the only sponsor that child will have. And becoming their sponsor is very easy. You just flip this packet over and fill out the blue and white paperwork. It's just one sheet. It's very quick. And then you turn in that paperwork at the compassion table. There's like a, a, a red ledge at the back of this lobby right, right here on this side. And if you just turn it in to, to, the, to the folks who are volunteering there, and, and you'll, you'll become that child's sponsor. That is $38 a month, and it's prayer, and it's letters encouraging that child, and they'll write you as well. You don't have to pay anything today. You can just write on that paperwork, I'll pay later, and Compassion will send you a bill, and you can pay that every month, okay? But you can pay your first month's payment of $38 today. You can do that by check, cash, credit card, uh, trade us your firstborn, however you want to do that. Um, so you can pay today your first month's payment of $38. And if you do that, I just want to say thank you from my family to yours. And I want to give you my latest CD. It's called Third World Symphony. Uh, it's not available in stores. You can get it on iTunes, but then you'll miss out on the awesome cover art, right? So I'll give this to you. I'll give you the CD. Uh, it's, it retails for $127. Uh, it's burned on platinum by the finger of God. No lasers. Uh, on Mount Sinai. It was a really hard deal to line up, but we did it. And I'll give that to you guys. I'll give that to you for free for $38. So if you sponsor a child and you fill out your paperwork and you turn it in with your first month's payment of $38, I'll give you that CD just as a gift. Just say thank you very much for me. Now, we're running out of those because this church has been so generous. So here's the thing. If we run out of packets, what you're going to get instead of a packet is a slip of paper that we made up this morning, and you just put your information on that, and I'll mail that into Compassion, and Compassion will then mail you a packet within 10 days, all right? This is just because you guys are so kind, they didn't ship enough packets. They underestimated your generosity. So if we run out of packets, and you get a white piece of paper, that's what that is. You just fill that out, and then we'll mail you a packet. If we run out of my CD, you have any of my other CDs that you want, okay? Uh, and so... Uh, uh, it, that's how we'll work that if we run out of stuff. If we run out of that, I've got some clothes in my suitcase. I don't know what we'll do after that, but we'll come up with something. All right? So I'm going to play this song. Uh, you guys pray as I do this and respond in one of those three ways. Get honest with God about where you really are. Confess to him your own doubts about whether you really can trust him and whether you can make a next step if he asks you to. All right? Second thing, ask God to show you your leftovers and ask him where he wants you to invest them so that the world sees he's good. The third thing, sponsor your child with compassion. Take only your daily bread and then pass the biscuits so the rest of the world gets to see that God really is good.
Thank you guys in advance for your generosity. Come.